Well, if you have your Bibles with you, I would encourage you to turn in them to Luke chapter 16, verses 14 through 18. Luke chapter 16, verses 14 through 18. In our bulletin, we, uh, it states that we'll be uh, reading through verse 31, but we'll actually only be considering verses 14 through 18 this morning. I realized towards the end of this week that that was a bit uh, ambitious of me, and I think we'll only get through the first uh, four or five verses here. So Luke chapter 16, verses 14 through 18. Well, please turn your attention to the reading of God's word. Luke chapter 16, verses 14 through 18. The Pharisees, who were lovers of money, heard all these things, and they ridiculed him. And Jesus said to them, You are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. The law and the prophets were until John. Since then, the good news of the kingdom of God is preached, and everyone forces his way into it. But it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to become void. Everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery, and he who marries a woman divorced from her husband commits adultery. Well, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. May he write this word upon our hearts this morning. As you may recall, in this section of Luke's gospel, uh, Jesus has been going back and forth between addressing the Pharisees on the one hand and his disciples on the other. For instance, if you recall back to chapter 15, Jesus was speaking directly to the Pharisees, the shepherds of God's people in his day, and indicting them for being neglectful shepherds. And he then tells these three parables about what it means to shepherd the people of God. It means to pursue and restore the erring member. And then uh, last time we were together in the first nine verses of chapter 16, Jesus turns his attention and now addresses the disciples and tells this difficult parable of the unfaithful or unjust steward and the application that Jesus gives his disciples is in the realm of money. They are to be generous. They are to be faithful stewards. No one can serve both God and money. Well, for those of us who've been in church for any number of years, we probably all have fallen into that trap where we, uh, quote-unquote, listen for others. That is to say, you're in church, you might be listening to a sermon, and you begin to think to yourself, boy, I hope so-and-so is listening, because this would be especially applicable to them. We listen to others. We listen for others. Well, I believe the disciples probably were doing that in verses 1 through 9. Jesus was specifically telling this parable to the disciples and applying it in the realm of their wealth. And I'm sure they were thinking to themselves, if this is applicable to us, how much more so to the Pharisees? I hope they're listening in. In fact, they were. Because you'll see that this passage begins in verse 14 with this reference to the Pharisees hearing all of these things. 
probably in reference to verses 1 through 9. And they, weren't, they did not like what they heard. Why? Because they were lovers of money. Now, you remember in verse, uh, in verse 9, Jesus talked about how he was kind of playing on this idea that was common in the Greco-Roman culture, that money was a means of gaining status, of gaining friends. You use one's wealth uh, to create friendships with people who are in a higher station of life than you and those on an equal footing and those below you. So wealth was very much bound up in climbing the social hierarchy of the Greco-Roman world. And so when Jesus says that the Pharisees were lovers of money, it also implies that they were lovers of status, of honor. Their main drive in life was to climb that ladder of the social hierarchy. They did not like what Jesus was saying. As a consequence, we read that they were ridiculing him. Now this word for ridicule that's used here by, uh, by, by Luke is used in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, Psalm 22, verse 7. Now we sang Psalm 22 for the last few weeks leading up to Good Friday and Easter because it is a psalm all about Christ. The first half has to do with the crucifixion of Christ, and the second half has to do with the resurrection of Christ. Christ himself quotes this psalm as he's hanging on the cross. And in verse 7, uh, the psalmist prophesies about when Jesus is hanging on that cross, he is going to be sneered and, and ridiculed by the rulers of this age. And then the same word is used in Luke chapter 23 when this comes to fulfillment. Jesus is actually hanging on that cross and the religious leaders and rulers of his age are sneering and ridiculing our Lord. Therefore, as the Pharisees here are ridiculing Jesus, they are ridiculing him in a way that's foreshadowing that ridicule that he will experience later in his ministry as he hangs on that cross. Well, Jesus says elsewhere in, in the Gospels that out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. That is to say, what comes from our mouth, what comes out of our mouth is never out of left field. It's always connected to those things that are brewing in our hearts. And the, out of the overflow of that heart, then our mouth speaks. So here we see that the, the Pharisees are ridiculing Jesus in their mouth and that then begs the question, well, what's, what's happening in their hearts? What's brewing in the pot of the Pharisee's heart, as it were? Well, Luke's already told us that one issue is that they're lovers of money. Money and status is an idol for the Pharisees, which is leading to this ridicule of Jesus. But Jesus, as he now responds to the Pharisees, instructs us on a number, a number of other issues that are going on in the hearts of the Pharisees that's leading to them, uh, leading to, to this ridicule of Jesus. So I'd like us to consider some of those other heart issues that the Pharisees are, are struggling with that's leading to this ridicule, this ridicule of the mouth. And so we see in verse 15, that, that these Pharisees feared man more than they feared God. 
Or to put it another way, they desired the applause of man more than they desired the applause of God. It's one of the heart issues that, that the Pharisees were dealing with. In verse 15, Jesus says, You are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. The Pharisees loved the glory that came from those around them more than the glory that came from God. Now, this word for justify is a word that's used throughout the New Testament to refer to that legal declaration in God's divine courtroom. Innocent or guilty. In fact, it was used in Luke chapter 10, the parable of uh, the Good Samaritan. This lawyer comes up to Jesus asking, well, good teacher, what must one do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, well, you know the law of God. Do this and you shall live. And Luke tells us that this lawyer, desiring to justify himself, the lawyer thought that he could come up with a favorable verdict in God's divine courtroom by his own merits. What we see here then is that the Pharisees were much more concerned with this horizontal justification before the eyes of men than they were about their vertical justification before the eyes of God. They feared man more than God. I mentioned before that fear and desire are really two sides of the same coin. And so they desired this, this horizontal justification much more than, than their vertical justification before God. This is a telltale sign of idolatry. When our justification before the eyes of men matter more than our, our justification in God's divine courtroom. When man is much bigger than what God is, and his word, man's word over us, matters more than God's word over us. In one sense, we all live in light of our justification. It's just a matter of which justification is decisive in your life. For the Pharisees, what mattered most to them was this horizontal justification, pleasing their fellow man. They didn't like how Jesus was indicting them, revealing, exposing them on this issue, and it led to this ridicule. They feared man more than God. But we also see another issue that, that the, the Pharisees are exemplifying here is that they were misreading Scripture. Not only were they fearing man more than God, but they were misreading Scripture. This is why Jesus, in verse 16, has this reference to the law and the prophets. You'll see that Jesus says, The law and the prophets were until John, but since then the good news of the kingdom of God is preached, and everyone forces his way into it. Here Jesus refers to the great plan of redemptive history. The law and the prophets is shorthand for all of the Old Testament. He's summarizing all of God's revelation in the Old Testament and is now signaling that a new era in redemptive history has dawned in his coming. The good news of the kingdom of God has been preached or is being preached. It's a whole new stage in history that's beginning with the coming of Christ. The Pharisees have, have failed to recognize the signs of the time. Now, this, this, this last phrase in this verse is, is difficult. It's difficult to translate. It's difficult to know exactly what Jesus is getting at. 
our ESVs say, and everyone forces his way into it. Some of you may have a footnote in your Bibles for an alternate reading which says something to the effect of all are urged forcefully or insistently into it. I think that's a, a more faithful rendering of that, that phrase, meaning everyone is urged, compelled, insistently invited into this kingdom. What that phrase then is teaching us is the unique nature of this kingdom of God that Jesus is instituting. And this unique nature of the kingdom of God is that everyone is insistently urged to enter into it. Meaning it has this uniquely inclusive nature to it. Something that the Old Testament scriptures didn't, Old Testament kingdom didn't, didn't quite have. For instance, we know that as this kingdom continues to dawn, and especially in, in the book of Acts, the Gentiles are folded into it. The Gentiles are urged insistently to enter it. That didn't happen in the Old Testament. The Gentiles weren't compelled and urged to enter the kingdom of God. It was realized in the Old Covenant. Another aspect of this inclusive nature of the kingdom is that the weakest members of society are now propped up as model citizens of this kingdom of God. This is a theme that Luke presents throughout his, his gospel. For instance, in Luke's version of the Beatitudes, Luke says, blessed are the poor, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Or if you remember two chapters ago, when Jesus is dining with some Pharisees on the Sabbath day, and he says some very countercultural things. He says that, you know, when you hold a feast, don't invite the honorable society, those who can repay you, reciprocate, but rather invite the poor and the blind and the, the beggar, those who can't repay you. And then he goes on to say, tell another parable about the kingdom of God and the marriage supper of the Lamb and how a host uh, created this, this great meal, made this great meal, invited all of his honorable friends. The last moment, all these friends gave excuses for why they can't be there. The food's on the table and no one's sitting there. And thus the host tells his servant to go out to the highways and byways and, and invite the poor and the blind and the beggars to come in and to feast with him. This shows us that in the kingdom of God, even the weakest of members are invited in and in many ways are, are, are presented as model citizens. Model citizens of the kingdom of God. Now as a side note, this is one of the reasons, this nature of the kingdom is one of the reasons why, or one of the arguments for why we practice infant baptism. I'm going to spend a few moments on this. You know, infant baptism is not something that we as Reformed churches just do because it's a leftover of the Roman Catholic Church. We do it because it's biblical. You know, God came to Abraham in Genesis chapter 17 and, and told him that I will be a God to you and to your children for an everlasting covenant. This Abrahamic covenant is described as being everlasting, and it's a, a covenant that includes both adults and children. Children are members of this everlasting Abrahamic covenant, and thus as a consequence, Abraham is told to give his children the sign of this covenant, which is circumcision, and he gives it to both elect Isaac and reprobate Ishmael. And as you continue to read on in your Old Testaments, 
we come across many prophecies about this coming kingdom of God, which the Messiah will institute. And many of these prophecies about the coming kingdom speak about the inclusive nature of this kingdom. It's a kingdom that will bless the nations, a kingdom that will go forth beyond Palestine to the nations. But we also read that this kingdom is a kingdom that's going to continue to bless the children, continue to include the children. So when we come to the New Testament, the pressing question that's on our minds is, do the New Testament authors continue or discontinue this fundamental paradigm of including children into the covenant and people of God? Now, that's the, the pressing question that's in our mind or should be in our minds when we approach the New Testament. Now, it'd be very strange for this kingdom, which one of its chief identifiers and markers is that it's much more inclusive than the kingdom of the old covenant. It'd be very strange if this inclusive kingdom, when it comes to the topic of children, is now much more exclusive than that of the old. It'd be very strange. But actually, we see that it's still very much inclusive when it comes to children. We see in the Gospels, we see in Acts, we see in the Epistles, we see in Hebrews, references, explicit and implicit, that this kingdom still includes children as members and citizens. And thus, as a consequence, they receive the sign of the covenant. The household formula is continued throughout the book of Acts and elsewhere. So this kingdom is an inclusive kingdom. It's an inclusive kingdom. Well, this is one of the things that the Pharisees didn't like. They didn't like this kind of kingdom that Jesus was bringing. And the reason they didn't like it is because they didn't want a kingdom that was filled with sinners, that was filled with tax collectors, that was filled with the scoundrels of society. To them, it, filled, it, feel, it felt weak and unimpressive. And the reason why they viewed the kingdom in this way is because they were not viewing it through the lens of the revelation of Christ. Now, we're going to fall in the same trap as the Pharisees do here if we view the kingdom apart from the revelation of Christ. For instance, if I were to ask you to define God's power, God's wisdom, God's grace, and to do so apart from the revelation of Christ, you're probably, you'll probably come up with definitions that resemble how, God, how power, wisdom, and grace are, are operating in our own society. But now if I ask you to define those terms based specifically on God's revelation to us in Christ and Him crucified, I hope that we would come to a slightly different, a slightly different definitions. For instance, God's power. How is that uh, interpreted through the revelation of Christ? Well, God's power is defined through a seemingly unimpressive individual coming to this earth, living 30 plus years, dying a shameful and humiliating death on a Roman cross. That's God's power. God's wisdom, his great plan to unite heaven and earth is by sending his son to perish in the hands of his enemies. God's grace defined by the greatest act of evil and atrocity in human history. 
So God's power, God's wisdom, God's grace are actually defined by what the world would deem as completely weak and foolish and tragic. And so this nature of the kingdom in which the weakest members are are propped up as model citizens are only going to make sense if we view the kingdom through the lens of the revelation of Christ. Otherwise, it's just going to seem weak and unimpressive, laughable. But when we see it through the lens of Christ, we see that we are following the footsteps of our Savior. And so the Pharisees, they're they're misreading Scripture. They're misreading Scripture according to their own selfish uh, devices. That's another issue that's, that's that's boiling up in their heart, that's leading to this ridicule of the mouth. We also see that the the Pharisees are misreading the law. If you look with me in your Bibles at verse 17, Jesus says, But it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to become void. Now this reference of a dot of the law is is um, a reference to one of the smallest strokes in, in human language. So Jesus is likely referring to the Hebrew, uh, the Hebrew language which the Torah was written in. And in the Hebrew language specifically, there, there are at least two pairs of characters in which the only way you can decipher the difference between the two is by a slight curvature in one of the lines. Beyond that, they're indistinguishable. That's what Jesus is referring to here. He's saying that it would be easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one of uh, the smallest of curvatures in a Hebrew character of the law to become void. I don't know about you, but when I read my Old Testament, there's lots of laws that seem void to me. (laughs) There's lots of laws that I... I hope we don't practice. I hope that none of you and for your private devotions are sacrificing bulls and goats to assure yourself of the forgiveness of sins. There's, uh, we rightfully are not governed by the civil laws of Israel today. So what does Jesus mean when he says not one dot of the law can become void? Well, this word for void is actually literally means to fail. It's used in Hebrews 11 when, uh, when author of Hebrews is referencing the wall, how, how the walls of Jericho came tumbling down. This word refers to something failing to accomplish its intended purpose. The walls of Jericho fell down. They failed to intent, uh, accomplish their purpose of protecting the city. Thus, we have to think about the law, the law in terms of the, the, the Mosaic law that was given to the Old Testament people of God. Did it fail to accomplish its intended purpose? Well, what was its intended purpose? Paul says explicitly in Galatians 3 and 4, the law was given, the Mosaic law was given to be a pedagogue, meaning a teacher, unto Christ. The law was given to prepare the people for the coming of Christ. Meaning, the law was given to teach the people what kind of Savior they needed. It taught the people that they needed a Savior who was going to come as the greater sacrifice. A sacrifice much greater than bulls and goats. The law was given to teach the people the righteousness that's needed to stand before God's holy presence. A righteousness that they themselves could not perform and needed to be performed by another. 
but the law also functioned as an avenue, a platform for Christ as the second Adam to come and do the work uh, that the first Adam failed to do. Christ came, as Paul says in Galatians 4, under the law, the Mosaic law, to redeem everyone who's born under the law, whether it be the Mosaic law or God's natural law. So the law's intended purpose was to teach the people about the coming Savior and to be an avenue for Christ to do his work. And we see that it accomplished its intended purpose. Christ came and he fulfilled that law. And so when we think about the law, especially the Old Testament law and how it applies to us, we always have to view it as going through the prism of Christ. That's one way a, a theologian has put it, which I think is very helpful. So think about the Mosaic law as going through the prism of Christ and being refracted to us on the other side. And that's how we have to view it. So the Mosaic law is split up into three main parts, the civil, the, the ceremonial or sacrificial, and the moral. So each one of those divisions, look at it as it goes through the prism of Christ and it's refracted on the other side for us as New Covenant Christians. For instance, the sacrificial ceremonial laws. Let's, let's see how, uh, what happens when that goes through the prism of Christ. Well, it goes through the prism of Christ and as it's refracted on the other side, it's, they're abolished, they're set aside. There's no more need for sacrificial laws because Christ is the fulfillment of all of those laws. What about the civil laws? We put those through the prism of Christ, and you see that those also have been set aside because Christ is the greater Joshua, the greater Moses, who has opened up the way to a greater homeland, not an earthly land in Palestine, but the heavenly Jerusalem and the new creation. What about the moral law? Well, the moral law, there's a substantial identity before and after Christ. You put that through the prism of Christ, there's still a substantial identity. There's some differences for instance, the seventh commandment with marriage and, and adultery, we now have the model of Christ and his church to guide us in our marriages, something that the Old Testament saints didn't have explicitly. So there are slight differences, but there's substantial identity. So this is what Jesus is saying. He's saying the law has not become void, meaning it's, it's fulfilled its intended purpose. And now when we view the Old Testament law, we have to view it through the prism of Christ. And so, as an example, as a test case, he takes the seventh commandment uh, of marriage to show the abiding validity of the moral law, even for those who live during and after the time of Christ. And so in verse, uh, verse 18, Jesus refers to this, this, this issue of divorce and remarriage, uh, which is tied to the seventh commandment. And here he states a general principle when it comes to marriage, that God ordained marriage to be an exclusive relationship for life. That was God's original intention in, in creation. And that when one uh, divorces his or her spouse on illegitimate grounds, it opens up the possibility for adultery. That's what Jesus is saying. Now, of course, Jesus is not being exhaustive on this issue. Uh, there are legitimate grounds for divorce that Jesus expounds upon elsewhere in Matthew 5, Matthew 19, and 1 Corinthians 7. Uh, we're not going to get into that today. Uh, but all that to say, Jesus is giving us the general principle. He's not stating exceptions. This oftentimes happens in Scripture with, with God's law. There, there are general principles, but then there are oftentimes exceptions to those general principles when it comes to moral truth. And so Jesus here is is stating the general rule when it comes to marriage. 
And the reason why he picks the seventh commandment in particular may be because the Pharisees were being quite lax in their day when it comes to issuing divorces. And in, in one sense, then, denigrating God's original plan and purpose for this sacred institution. In the Old Testament, we see that the, the breaking of the seventh commandment is implicitly and explicitly referred to as abom- an abomination before God. The breaking of the seventh commandment is an abomination before God. I'd like to connect this then to verse 15. So if you remember verse 15, that was that statement about how the Pharisees fear man more than God. Uh, the Pharisees were essentially people pleasers. And in so doing, they were an abomination before God. Jesus says the things that are exalted before men are an abomination before God. So we can deduce that when the Pharisees were, were lax in issuing these, these divorces and denigrating God's, God's institution of, of marriage, they were doing this in part probably to please their fellow men, to gain a good report among their people. And in so doing, they were practicing an abomination before God. This may be one of the abominable practices that verse 15 speaks of. One application of this, then, is that when it comes to God's leaders, his shepherds, that when, when pleasing man becomes the ultimate priority, oftentimes leads to abominable practices in the sight of God, as we see here with, with the Pharisees. We remember that I began with quoting Jesus' statement that he says elsewhere in the Gospels, that out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. So this passage begins with a statement about how the, the Pharisees are ridiculing Jesus with their mouth, and thus there's something that's boiling in their heart that's, that's leading to this ridicule. And we know that what's boiling in their heart is sin and unbelief. Sin and unbelief is in the heart, and it, it's boiling over in ridicule of the mouth. Now, the sin and unbelief can take a variety of forms. It looks like, on the one hand, this love for money, this love for status. But it also looks like their, their, uh, uh, their fear of man more than God. They desire to please man more than they desire to please God. That's another issue that's boiling the pot of, of, of the Pharisees' heart. But also their misreading of Scripture and their misreading of the law for their own selfish gains and pursuits. All of, the, all of those things are, are boiling up in the Pharisees' hearts that's leading to this ridicule of the mouth. Now, I said we're not going to get into uh, this next parable, and I'm, I'm not. I just want to make one brief comment on it because I believe it should be read in light of this passage. Now, this, this parable is about the rich man and Lazarus. Uh, the rich man um, does not treat Lazarus, who's a poor man, well in this age, and they both die. The rich man goes to, to, to hell. Lazarus goes to heaven with Father Abraham. And the rich man is experiencing the wrath of God in hell and, and pleads to Father Abraham uh, that Abraham would go and warn his brothers to repent so that they might not experience what he's experiencing. And Abraham's response is, is, is illuminating. He says, why do you think they would listen to me if they have not already listened to the law and the prophets, to scripture? What this tells us is that the reason people don't believe is not a lack of revelation. It's not a lack of evidence. The reason people don't believe is because of sin and unbelief in the heart. 
And ever since the fall of our first parents, Adam and Eve, our natural state is sin and unbelief. We are dead in our sins and trespasses. Our natural state is like the Pharisees, where we have sin and unbelief boiling up in our heart that leads to ridicule of Jesus in the mouth. That's natural to the fallen human being. So the question that then comes to mind is, how do we go from being a Pharisee, sin and unbelief in the heart and ridicule in the mouth, to what Paul says in Romans 10, where one has faith in the heart and confession and praise in the mouth? How does that transformation happen? Well, Jesus later on in his ministry, in his upper room discourse, will say that uh, he, he will be leaving soon. And he'll be leaving soon, and that will be to the advantage of his disciples, because then his helper will come, the Spirit, the Spirit which proceeds from the Father and the Son, the Spirit of Christ. And the Spirit's job is then, then to change the hearts of God's people, to remove this heart of stone and give a heart of flesh, uh, to give a heart that for the first time ever beats with faith and trust in Christ and causes us to use a different language of the mouth, not a language of ridicule, but a language of praise and confession. And this transformation, this work is only accomplished through the Holy Spirit. We can't accomplish this on our, uh, by ourselves. This is a miraculous work that the God does through his word and spirit. Makes dead sinners alive for the first time. And this, brothers and sisters, is what we pray that the Lord will continue to do in our own midst, uh, in, in, in our community, in our families. And this is what uh, we pray that he will do when his word is proclaimed, his word is preached, his word is opened. And so that's the great hope that we have and the great hope that I want to leave you with uh, this morning. So let us pray.